0: Welcome back to Firewall. I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. A special episode today. My guest is Mark Chiasano. Mark just wrote a fantastic book uh, about the entire, I don't know what you going to call it, epic of George Santos or, you know, saga, whatever it is. Um, and I think just uh, because uh, it, everyone here kind of has has something to add to it. Hugo is going to join us because Hugo has spent a career in uh, media and journalism and sure has a a take on this. And Corey, both because you guys are friends. Yes. um, And also today is Corey's birthday. Thank you, Bradley.
1: Thank you. Happy birthday. I can't imagine being anywhere else. Um, So, Mark, let me just read
0: the bio that Corey gave me so we can get that out of the way. Right. So, before the book, you were a columnist and editorial board member at Newsday, you teach writing at CUNY City Tech. You're the co-editor of the Fiction Substack Works Progress. Um, and most importantly, you are a Mets fan. That's right. That's yeah, right. the rest of it. Who, do you think we're going to get Yamamoto?
2: I wish, but, you know, to be a Mets fan is to suffer. So Correct. I feel like no. Correct. Grit. Yeah, that, that's that's my take on it, too. So um,
0: I think all of our listeners, we were just chatting before we started recording. My guess is George Santos has a 100% name ID among our listeners. But because our listeners are like half people who are really into politics and half people that are really much more into tech... Um, Take just a minute and explain who this guy is and in in doing so, because this was my first question for you anyway, what
2: made him this way and what allowed society, what allowed this to all happen? Right. So I guess the the two things about George Santos is that he's, on the one hand, a liar, right? So he's lied about a wild number of things. So that includes his background, fake Wall Street jobs, uh, his college degrees, stuff about his family, jobs that they didn't have. Also kind of weird stuff that probably people remember, like supposedly said that he worked uh, he, he was a Broadway producer on spider-man you know um, truly a wild thing to lie about because it was a terrible show right um, so he's on the one hand lying and on the other hand he's kind of grifting and stealing on these kind of low-level um, small-time hustles that includes you know having this pet nonprofit that wasn't really a nonprofit bilking a couple thousand dollars off pet owners that yeah. way right obviously going up to in politics all his campaign finance stuff just stealing money from donors straight up. And
0: is the lying, and they're not mutually exclusive, but seeing that there's pathological lying or there are people who just literally seem psychologically capable of, of telling the truth, and then there's sort of opportunistic lying, which I guess is what grifting is considered, If you had to sort of divide it up into like categories, how would you put a percentage on each?
2: That's right. He kind of does both. You know, it's maybe 50-50. But he, the funny thing is that he, the more interesting lying is when he doesn't have to lie at all. Right? So that's the pathological side. Yeah, he'll be at a dinner party and he'll pretend he knows someone's wife's um, boss. And there's no way he knows this person. But he'll just double down on it for the hell of it. And
0: he's just, in that case, is it, I mean, he just said, look. I'm just much smarter than everyone else, and in order for me to keep myself entertained, I have to engage in a form of of parody and performance art. Um, Would he try to justify it that way, or is it just literally like he needs to connect or impress in some way and it doesn't matter what it
2: is? Yeah, I mean, he's never really made that particular excuse. You know, in the book, I try to sort of take his words for some, like to get some meaning out of his words. One thing that he has said is that he's acted out of insecurity, right? That's part of sure. what has driven him, which makes sense, right?
1: right. Gives him something in common with every politician in the world. That's right. Yes. That's right. Okay, so I want to follow up about the whole lying thing because I was really struck by something from the beginning. Um, you clearly did a lot of research and you found some obscure interview he did with someone from the NYPD in the intro. So you wrote... Um, Once, he, Santos, was interviewed on a podcast by a former NYPD detective who said confidently, quote, my art is sniffing through bullshit. This law enforcement professional, one of New York's finest, reiterated that he could, quote, smell a bullshit artist a mile away. But as for Santos, he said, you're legit. You know your stuff. So you sort of, through all this research, I'm sure did your own psychoanalyzing of Santos and where it came from. So I'm curious, do you think it came to some degree from his parents, genetic disposition? And do you think... You through all your research have become a better um, observer or person who can understand if someone is lying or not,
2: right? Right? So, first of all, Santos loves podcasts, so I don't know. You Make guys give it listening. a shot, i be listening. You can yeah. come on, you know. Yeah, You're, sure. You're welcome. You're welcome. Um, no, he's, actually, he's not because yeah.
0: we'd have to, it would take us like three years to fact check right. every
2: word. <laughs> he loves them, he listens to them, he goes on them. Um, that one was really funny, that MYPD one. Because I reached out to the host, the former NYPD yeah. officer, and said, "Hey, do you want to talk about this? I'd love to hear about that experience." And he was like, "Absolutely not." You know, uh-huh. like, do you know that guy so has the worst solve crimes uh, record of anyone in the NYPD? I did not know that, no, but that's But yeah, <laughs> it seems, seems likely. Um, yeah, that would be a stat that I'd love to get. You know, I wonder if they. I'm sure if I'm sure you, has theoretically
0: it. you have it, but yeah. they've buried that shit like uh, deep, deep, deep. It's not foilable. Yeah, yeah.
2: But so I, you know, I I don't think that I've gotten personally better at like looking at a liar and figuring it out. But I did in the book do some um, research into the or just you know looking at the the scientific research about how you find a liar. And the thing that I was surprised by is that we're pretty bad at it, right? Um, Especially people who think that they're good at it, like judges or cops. Um, Those people are not typically better than your your just normal person at finding a liar. What does work is sort of pressing a liar, um, making it, because it's very cognitively difficult to lie. So if you sort of make a liar tell a story backwards or kind of jab in with a question that they're not expecting, their lie gets kind of jumbled up, and then you can notice that. You can notice what happens when things get a little messy. So I think now I sort of appreciate more these tools that we have especially journalists of sort of pressing people and interviewing them in person you know that helps
0: how like how good are people like him at sort of remembering who they said to what like i'll give you an example we had an employee once that eventually that i kind of suspected was lying about everything and then my suspicions were confirmed and i acted on it when i realized he was telling people Different answers to the simple question of where are you from, Whoa. and once we started getting multiple options there, I was like, okay, this is that's this is a serious problem. Um, so, like, what's you know, was Santos able to kind of cover his tracks and remember everything, or is he just out there saying whatever? and... Just fall where they
1: may.
2: Yeah, there were some bugs in the system. One of my favorite moments is he's literally in a debate with Robert Zimmerman, his 2022 opponent, uh, Democrat. The sweatpants? Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So he's in this debate and it's the end of, it's kind of a softball question. It's like something like, what do you do for Christmas with your family? What are your traditions? And so first the Democrat says something banal like, you know, I uh, sit around in sweatpants and I eat Hagen dazs Okay, fine. I suppose,
0: the answer's supposed to be because Zimmerman's Jewish Chinese food in a the movie. There you go. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Well,
2: okay. <laughs> whatever. It's a sort of whatever answer. Um, and then Santos, the question comes to Santos immediately after, and he immediately says, yeah, you know, I lie around the house on the couch wearing sweatpants and I have Hagen dazs You know, and it's like Zimmerman just looks at him. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Like I just said that. And it was at that moment you could see that he almost like forgot that he was that the, he was sitting next to the person whose story he just stole.
1: I think, I think I was so close to go, trying to go to the back of the book to your bibliography and find that YouTube clip somewhere. <laughs> because it sounded so absurd that that would happen. and I want to try to see what Zimmerman's reaction would be like when, when Santos okay, just repeated it. But
0: let's let's talk about Zimmerman though, right? Like what the fuck? Like, how could both, I would say, the Zimmerman campaign and your colleagues, especially Mm -hmm. Newsday, quite frankly, Mm -hmm. uh, not your current colleagues, but
2: your former colleagues, how could everyone fuck this up so badly? How is it possible? You know, what's funny is that if there had been just one lie or three lies even, I wonder if something would have been different. But here there were people poking at him. You know, the reporters, myself included, the daily people at the Daily Beast, North Shore leader, people kind of found little things about him, things that were sketchy, things that didn't add up. And so did the Democrats. I mean, we, we always sort of uh, rail at the, the Democratic campaign arm for the congressional campaigns, the DCCC. Um, we rail on their sort of opposition research. This is sort of a common thing in politics, um, that they didn't find anything. But they actually found a lot of really crazy stuff about him. They found that pet nonprofit thing, a lot of wild stuff that he'd said in the past. The problem is that when you lie about everything, um it's you know, it's almost helpful for you. You know, people found little lies but didn't connect the dots.
0: Okay, but you're the Zimmerman campaign, yeah. right? And this is your job. And if even just by taking all the lies that are out there, how did no one there then reach the conclusion to say to every reporter, everything here is a lie, Mm -hmm. go look into it? Because it seemed like once the media finally decided to do its job, obviously I'm not being kind here, um, you figured out a lot of shit really fast, right? It's like the New York Times just ignored it until after the election. They're like, oh. So it's not that you guys couldn't have found it. It's that, quite frankly, you didn't bother. And I think it's, it's, yes, there's a little stuff, but it's mismanagement by Zimmerman and the C first, but, but also by, by reporters. Yeah, well,
2: it's no one telling the full story, right? Yeah. And no one saying what is, it's sort of missing the forest for the trees a little bit. Because um, in some ways, you know, the, the, the sort of political situation helped Santos. He wasn't supposed to win and then he kind of was. So there were some political dynamics that helped. But more than that, he just, um, he benefited from the fact that no one connected those dots. And for Zimmerman, for example, he um, chose a different attack line against Santos, right? He did every once in a while try a little bit of this, he's a con man businessman kind Mm -hmm. of thing, but only in a very small way, like a press release here, that kind Mm -hmm. of thing. Um, Maybe a conversation with a reporter. The line that he used was abortion and January 6th. Okay. so this, when I
1: was reading this and you were mentioning, um sorry to cut you off, you're mentioning Zimmerman. They got the oppo book, but he really was focusing, he and the DCCC, which is the Democratic campaign aren't where I actually worked for a little That's bit right, in 2020. I forgot about that. Um, <laughs> uh, he uh, was focusing on January 6th and abortion, and you said that. Abortion didn't really cut through in a blue state like New York because people felt we're in a blue state It's gonna be protected and then we saw the Long Island wave Etc. And I was like is this foreshadowing what's going Mm. to happen again in 2024 because all you hear is um, Democrats are gonna run on abortion everywhere Do you think in a place like New York that we're falling into the same
2: trap? I think that we had this really surprising to some Local red wave on Long Islands and in suburban parts of New York. One person in the book told me uh, this is sort of an activist told me that he saw a kind of donut around, um, sub- like sort of suburban areas around major cities, right? And that that donut could have the potential to go very, very red. Um, and I do think that it's if you're sort of ignoring, if you don't have the benefit of those huge national issues like abortion on January 6th then you fall prey to the local ones like criminal justice reform that Republicans really, really ran on in the last few years, really. And that, I don't think, is a pressure that's gone away.
0: N- not at all. But, I mean, it seems to me that this is a good example of, and I get that you're the DCCC, you got 435 races you're dealing with, but they generalize things so much, so like this is the winning talking yeah, point yeah. and kind of miss the reality of it. And I think some of the reality of it is, look, you can debate how much crime bail reform led to. I still believe it was a significant amount. Others might. Yeah. I, know, I know there are people with stats who will tell you otherwise. Um, but nonetheless, you know, the story here was not January 6th or abortion. I think it was this frustration by middle-class and moderate people all around the city uh, of being told that they're wrong all the time and that they're evil all the time, and that they're racist all the time. And there was just so much frustration at kind of the the far left and the media that it was a big fuck
2: you to everybody. You know, what's funny though, now that I'm thinking about it, is that there was another factor at play here which is that santos himself said the wildest things about abortion in january 6th right it wasn't just like he's a replacement republican who was saying you know was kind of vaguely yeah. uh, on board i mean he literally is at the oval on january 5th you know at the right before the trump rally saying they did to me what they did to trump they stole my election like he is one of the you know, premier election denier people. He said crazy stuff about abortion, like comparing it to slavery and flip-flopping on it too. So, you you know you can if you look at it from afar, you can see why they jumped on these things. But again, it missed the local context.
1: There's oh sorry, I just want to jump in about the Oppo research part and about this abortion and um, January 6th. And Bradley, this also might be a question for you because Mark, you detailed in the book sort of the crazy steps someone from the DCCC or a Democratic candidate would have to take to do an attack ad. And I'm curious, Bradley, if this would be your playbook. And I don't know where you got this from, Mark, maybe from the DCCC themselves. But you wrote that first you get the oppo doc from the DCCC, then you hire another research to, researcher to dive deeper, then you do a poll to see how the issue and, other, and how it resonates with voters, then you make and pay for a TV ad, then you follow up with direct mail and digital ads. Like there was so much out there and this seems so mm-hmm. complicated and so expensive and time consuming. Like how are you going to actually get the research out? Is this something from your campaigns, Bradley, that like you would follow? For so, sort of, I, mean, I, I saw that in the notes and it's not
0: inaccurate, right? Those are all steps that are used. However, I think to a certain extent, look, I know that when we're running a campaign, whether it's electoral or, or an issue or whatever else, we're relentless, right? So it's not like, okay, here are our three Oppo hits and we're going to put these out and hopefully people will write about them, right? It's just pounding away every day with every reporter you can until something breaks through. And then based on whatever breaks through, that's what you then run with. So, you know, I don't think it's that the process itself is inherently wrong or flawed. I think it's that when you have, you know, people who are mediocre at their jobs, whether it's the candidate or the campaign itself or the reporters covering the race, um, then it doesn't work.
2: You know, um, the what you just described, Corey, is kind of the sympathetic case for Zimmerman and the D-trip. You know, it's basically the sort of, well, th- these are the difficulties. One thing I would say, though, is that Zimmerman was pretty, the whole time or most of the time, he's kind of either within the margin of error or you know certainly not leading much at all in this campaign I think he was losing for a lot of it um, so I wonder what would have happened if he pivoted strategies right because I do think there is some reality to you kinda have to find a message and pound it and focus on one thing just cuz of the media market that we're mm-hmm. in in New York but you know its it could have been possible to change your message and what would that have looked like if the campaign was totally different and now that we're thinking about
1: hypotheticals um let's talk about swazi and sort of the future do you think if he had decided to not run for his uh his governor bid do you think he would have beaten santos
2: yes i mean he that, that you know who knows it's a hypothetical but let's look at the history he beat santos significantly the first time around right he has significant name recognition on the other hand, the district changed, right? It's a totally different district. Um, I think Swazi was probably uh, looking at that district, looking at the way the currents had changed and how things were, this was kind of a Republican year. So it, it's, not, it's not a walk in the park. One thing I would say, though, is it's funny that, you know, you look at Swazi, and now Swazi's running again, right? Mm. And there was this very funny moment in 2022 um, during that campaign where... Uh, Santos, again, on a podcast, because he loves podcasts, he said he was asked something about Swazi, and he had this funny answer that, you know, you know Swazi didn't really uh, sling mud at me. Something, like, very evocative like that. And I think it was very telling because he almost seemed surprised at that. And it's like, if, Sw- if Swazi had, you know, absolutely just thrown Santos into the dirt, if he just, like, kind of used every single piece of oppo he had, which he didn't really have much, I wonder if that would have scared Santos away. So a um,
0: bit of a question. And like, so obviously for this story to be a great story, you have to believe that there is significance to Santos's sort of success in the first place, right? In that um, it's the United States Congress mm-hmm. and it's august and it's powerful. But there was, you know, stories in all the papers today. I think Axios or someone added yeah. up the bills that were passed last year. And, like, other than, you know, I went through and there was, like, 37 total or 18 or something. And, like, other than just the debt ceiling and the continued resolution to keep the, the budget, the government funded, there was nothing, right? It was all just little bits of nonsense. So we're at the argument with, given the disarray among the House Republicans, given the inability of them to do anything anyway, like, what's
2: the difference? Didn't really matter. Right, let's have just a kind of weirdo, a clown in Congress. Uh, Yeah, like who cares? They don't do anything anyway. Yeah, I mean, I think that this is what was interesting to me about the Santos story is that he's kind of an avatar of all this chaos. It was a total chaos Congress, right? And he was part of that, but he wasn't the only one. I mean, we have Marjorie Taylor Greene with her crazy stuff about Jewish space lasers, you know. Um, It's a caucus that is doing sort of wild stuff. Wow, they're also not really legislating, like you said. Um, so he was sort of a symbol of all that, but he's also kind of, um, you know, participating in it in a real way. I mean, he, uh, he, again, he loves sort of going online and chatting and saying wild things. He said the wildest things while he was elected, you know, after everything came out, no longer talking about his biography. You know, he had this kind of crazy line about after the Hamas attack on Israel that we should go into a police state in the U.S., go door to door to kind of root out terrorism, you
0: know. And is he saying whatever he thinks will get him attention at that moment? Or is he like literally... I guess the question is how... how, He's clearly not mentally stable, but is he so unstable that there's literally no rhyme or reason to anything? Or is there a method behind the madness? And it may be a, a method that... Uh, We don't like but you know my argument might be it may just be an exaggerated version of what we see from most every politician
2: I think that he is very sensitive to his audience. He's good at kind of pivoting He takes other people's stories and kind of iterates on them. So he's like a listener for sure Um, But I don't know that he has a grand plan ahead, you know, I don't think he's that organized Um, so tell us about sort
0: of your journey on this so like when do you hear of George Santos? When do you meet him? Yeah. When do you realize, like, hey, this is, this is an amazing potential book? You go to Brazil to do research. Yeah. Like, how does this all unfold?
2: Yeah, Brazil, by the way, is one of, the, one of my favorite parts of this book. Um, yeah. But I, so I hear about him in 2019. Um, I'm writing for this uh, newsletter at Newsday, and my, my boss says, my editor says, hey, give this guy a call. He's running at Swazi. So I give Santos a call. This is when he's a real nobody, fresh new candidate, and he picks up very quickly, which is great. You know, it's like, all right, I got my story today, and I and he um, he I, I ask him, or right, you know, what what what's going on today? You know, and he says, I'm launching my campaign, um, but he's doing it from Florida, not from New York, right? Which again is this first weirdness. It's like, why would you be launching a campaign hundreds, thousands of miles away from the district? Um, but he claims he is and that there's some mix-up with his staff. He also didn't put any paperwork online yet. So it's like all the the, the seeds of it all were there. So like the at, on day one, there were some red flags. hundred percent. And that's why I kind of kept looking at him and writing things about him. Again, not unfortunately finding the huge things and connecting the dots. Yeah. Um, but I keep kind of coming back to him and writing about crazy maskless fundraiser he does, the fact that he doesn't live in the district that he says he lives in or doesn't seem to, um, all these things and um, and keep kind of learning more about him. The, what was interesting to me, um, you mentioned Brazil, yeah. is that I think that there's there's a couple of things that shaped him. One is, is Queens, is New York. Um, he's deeply shaped by the sort of dynamics of the fact that you live in the outer boroughs and you're always kind of looking at Manhattan and kind of wanting something more, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I talked to a teacher of his or, or you know people at the school he went to who said he would come up after class and say, Um, You know, what can I do to get ahead? So he clearly Mm -hmm. had these ambitions early. So I think he's shaped by Queens and living in Jackson Heights. And he's also shaped by his time in Brazil, which is is where his parents are from, right? And um, he would kind of go back and forth, spent a lot of time there when he was an adolescent. And this, of course, is where he did his sort of drag dressing. This is this moment.
0: Yeah, so get into that a little bit.
2: Yeah, so, so he has claimed this was like one time thing, basically. Um, his new line is that it's literally one day that he dressed in drag, which is absolutely not true. Um, I talked to many people who remember him dressing in drag multiple times, um, which is, you know, whatever, it's totally fine. It's a weird mm-hmm. thing to lie about unless you are deciding that, you know, it's, it's, uh, your, your, your political life is that it's bad, right, to be dressing in drag. So he's, he's in Brazil. Um, this is when he's kind of a late teenager. And I, w- what was interesting to me, um, I didn't totally understand the drag thing for him until I got down there. And I think here we, we see it as this kind of, uh, it's almost this goofy thing that he's doing, right? And it's sort of funny that it goes opposite his political stances. But when I got down there, I was able to find his drag mentor, who um, is this Eola Rochard, yeah, yeah um, great performer. Um, and, and so she, she goes by she, um, is, uh, you know, doesn't really perform that much anymore, but it just so happens that when I'm there, she says, I'm doing a performance and I can come see it. So I go and again, there's no, there's like one video of Santos dressing in drag, there's a couple of pictures, not too much. But then I went and saw his drag mentor actually perform and in th- this way you can kind of get a sense of what he, why he's doing it. And it's funny, it's at like essentially at a sex club. This is where the performance is held. And um, the first couple of performances are just sort of stripping. You know, it's just total, it's absolutely connected to sex. And then Rochard comes on and it's totally different. It's like she's wearing this beautiful dress, her hair is perfectly made up, makeup and everything. It's all about like beauty and performance and, um, and kind of changing who you are, feeling like a different person. And that sort of struck me. I was like, oh, okay, this is what this meant to Santos. It was a way to transform himself.
0: And Which he think... sort of just ended up doing without the drag eventually, right? Yeah, exactly.
2: Yeah. found a new way to do it.
1: Yeah. Uh, <laughs> go ahead, Corey. Oh, I was going to say, I mean, I liked that section in Brazil. I'm sure we could do a whole podcast about how you – do research in a country where you're not from, in a language you don't speak, into a community you're not a part of, um, banging on doors to try to find information, but that'll be for our our part two podcast. Mm -hmm. Do you think when you saw Rochard performing, was there a world in which you thought like this could have been Sandoz's life? Or was did you, from your research, was it clear? Brazil was just a pit stop to much bigger things.
2: Yeah, I mean, by the way, my translator, who was great, uh, shout out my translator um, in Brazil, was like, no, I'm not coming with you that night. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I was totally on my own uh, in in the club. Um, you know, he, he couldn't have stayed there forever because one of the things that happened in Brazil is that he passes this bad check, right? He's doing this very low-level, sketchy thing of he gets... A uh, an old checkbook from a dead guy that his mother was taking care of and he starts using it and he gets caught and it's like one of these goofy things of course you're going to get caught right this is not a super incredible con and he uh, and the authorities find out in Brazil and he basically skips town and he kind of leaves uh, you know with the authorities on his tail so I, I if you know maybe if he wasn't doing that level of conning maybe he could have stayed huh? he clearly liked it there it was like a moment of escape for him so two questions one is so the aftermath so for
0: santos personally three things one what happens legally here does he end up in prison two um the short-term fame like three different people have sent me like look at this george santos cameo that i paid for right like (laughs) how long does that last and then you know trying to predict out his life in five or ten years where do you think it is Uh, We'll start with
2: that. Yeah, he has real, real legal challenges. You know, it's kind of it's fun and games right now. The cameo stuff, Um, he's making money. But one reason he's kind of hustling for money is because he really needs it. Um, He's he's facing like significant indictment on federal level. Um, His trial date supposedly is September. Um, I, I just love this detail supposedly, you know, the prosecutors wanted it earlier They're like, let's just get this over with, you know, it's, it's pretty cut and dry and the judge was like no I got some other cases also. No one shows up for jury duty in the summer. <laughs> it's like it's our fault. On Long on island <laughs> Everywhere everywhere um, Who can who can argue with that but so he's got that coming up supposedly he's talking about a plea deal so that's possible but he's lost his big bargaining chip, which was being in office. Yeah, so and why
1: did he? I mean, he do that?
0: Yeah.
2: I mean, I guess he got expelled. They didn't walk away. Right. But why? Why not cut the deal before then? He totally could have tried. He could have cut a deal earlier. Um, I've been told that you know the that any deal that was sort of offered included jail time, uh, prison time, and he didn't want that. He didn't want to go to prison. So it still really? doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. Shocker. Shocker. <laughs> um, and. and and, and so, you know, I think he was kind of running out his options. And, you know, this part is kind of hard to get in his head. I try to get in his head a lot in the book. Um, but just as an observer from the outside, it is possible that, you know, the, the longer he doesn't take a plea deal, the longer he's, you know, out of jail or prison, um, the more he can be notorious and famous and make money on these little kind of small grifty things. So it does make a certain weird amount of sense. Is know? he wearing an ankle bracelet? Wow, it's a great question. Because wouldn't he just leave? Right. I don't think he's. I haven't. I haven't heard anything about an ankle bracelet. But they did take his passports and his movement was restricted. He actually, um, his his uh, lawyer moved to sort of open those restrictions a little so that he could go shopping, which is <laughs> hilarious. Uh, and you probably
1: movement. had you probably had maybe the best timing for any book launch ever because Greg. Yeah. If I'm wrong, Greg. If I'm wrong, your book came out. Three days before he was expelled from Congress the day before or the day of the the measures were introduced in the house I'm curious up until when could you edit your book? I mean, you know Bradley the timelines for book writing are crazy up until when could you edit it? And how did you feel once the expulsion train started going you said crap like my book doesn't get
2: there. (laughs) You know, I I did get really lucky and again and sort of shout out, you know Simon Schuster (laughs) for helping me do this but usually and Bradley, you know this people kind of lock in a book really far in advance because of it just takes a lot to you know print the paper and uh, and mm-hmm. sort of get everything set up so the wild thing was that you know this book came out november 28th columbus day weekend in october um this is there's a there's a couple of new kind of changes in uh, you know the in the the legal case uh some, his, his treasurer uh, takes a plea deal and i was like i got to get this in this is super important it really like tells us more about what he was doing on the campaign trail and they let me sort of take out sentences and put in sentences like the like sort of one out one in kind mm-hmm, of thing mm-hmm. i couldn't change anything about the pagination the pages at all um but i did this um like sort of late at night literally as the book is a so like, printers. be like right, you have
0: 103 words oh
2: it was even less than it was like spaces you know it was like wow. character counts yeah it was a Dumb way to be writing, but but I got it in, and so that's like you know, whatever that is, two months before, right? Um, so it's it's it was pretty up to date, which I was glad about, and I I knew that there were you know, I sort of drew a couple of potential paths in the conclusion, right. um, and then uh, you know, the the ethics committee report comes out, um, uh, again, got very lucky because this was this was this kind of turning point in the whole Santos story is that um, everyone everything else had been kind of allegations before the ethics committee had bank statements, right? So it's a little more like, this is evidence of his wrongdoing. But I got lucky that a lot of what they had in there, I'd been reporting on his sort of fascination with Botox and shaping his body and stuff like that. So it stayed pretty current, luckily. So I wanna talk about, before we wrap up, two other people that were sort
1: of in my mind when I was reading the book. So you just mentioned the treasurer, Nancy Marks, um, who pled guilty, right? Um, to conspiracy and falsifying campaign records. So something that came to mind when reading this, I was reading this right around, we're following all the news about our own mayor and his own treasurer. And I'm curious about your research into, and the news around Treasurer Nancy Marks, um, if this sheds light into the FBI
2: investigation into the mayor and his treasurer and where you think that might be headed. Well, I I would say that these kind of investigations, typically, um, and we saw this with Santos, we're seeing this with Adams, you don't get a lot of detail until um, until sort of indictments come out, right? Or subpoenas are issued. Um, it's it, they're not really leaky ships on the federal level. So um, so I think we don't know a ton yet. We're gonna know more. Um, the other thing, the other similarity I would say is that when the federal government brings its sort of awesome power to bear on these cases, it's a sight to behold and. I do think there was a kind of similar reaction that Santos had and Adams seems to have had of, of being very nervous about this. Right, this is not a place they want to be in um, as much. In some, you know, they, they they both have a similar level of swagger in a way. Right, they're both outer borough New York guys. Actually, Adams is a Queens guy too. Really, in the in the beginning, um, and so I think we're seeing them both deal with the um, with that pressure
1: now. And. I'm just gonna follow up about someone else we spoke about. Tom Swazi, former congressman for the area, ran for governor. Now he's running again. And we, Bradley, we didn't talk about Santos pretending he's Jewish, which is such a, which is such a. I have to say, so uh, I've got like a couple of favorite lines ever in politics. And
0: Santos saying, I didn't say I was Jewish, I said I was Jewish. It's incredible. Like, I, that's really right up there. It's perfect. I yeah. mean,
2: what a campaign uh, line. Well, I, feel I feel
0: exactly
1: think. the same way as George Santos.
0: I'm Jewish. I'm yeah. not yeah. Jew. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's actually very accurate for you. Yeah, it is.
2: Yeah. I like that. It's one of the most New York iconic lines. You know, like how many New Yorkers can say that? And this is another thing is that. Sandoz was kind of he became kind of good on the campaign trail. He developed answers like this. Um, he knew how to disarm people. One person told me he's at a he's at a very confrontational town hall once on the campaign trail. And, uh, you know, people are saying, are you you are an extremist? Like, how can we vote for you? You know, your opponents uh, painting you as an extremist. And he says something to the effect of. I'm not an extremist. I'm just your wife's gay best friend. You know that's a really good line on Long Island. That will play in Massapequa. You know, so he kind of his performance really worked.
1: And you mentioned so back to the Jewish thing. You mentioned that the third district is one of the most Jewish in the entire country. You have Swazi there running, and I think just last week they announced um, this candidate. for yeah, The Mazi, GOP picked yeah. Mazie Melissa Phillip. I think is how you pronounce yeah. it. She has a um, really incredible biography, she's Ethiopian, she's yeah. Israeli, she's Jewish, she's American, she's elected as a Democrat, but serves, she is a Democrat, yeah. but elected as a Republican, right. the GOP picked her, she's running against Swazi, who's not Jewish and not Jew-ish. Although, <laughs> no, I'm,
0: I'm sure he'd be happy to claim okay. either one. If Potentially, it helps her yeah. so actually, and you
1: you have this... The special election in February, and as you said, one of the most Jewish districts, right now when Israel is at war, when you see a heightened amount of anti-Semitic attacks, Swaz you were very confident Swazi could have beaten Santos How do you think this race against Swazi against this Jewish woman with a very fascinating background is gonna play out?
2: Yeah, yeah, so I mean I you know I'll, I'll caveat with with Swazi is that again He's running in a district that wasn't his original one. So it's not uh, It's not gonna be a walk in the park for him. You know, it's funny cuz mazi uh, launched her campaign in a part of the district that Swazi didn't have, Massapequa, um which is super super red. Um former representative Pete King told me that, you know, who's from uh, that that general area, you know, told me that that's kind of like his, that that was where he won his campaigns was this part of the district that again Swazi is new in. So I yeah, it's it's going to be tough for him and she has a really really compelling story. Um you know, it just you, you made me remember that great Andrew Cuomo line where Giving that speech, uh, you know, when he was governor, saying, I am Jewish, I am Italian, I am a New York, I'm, gay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm yeah. Yeah. so maybe there is something. About New York. And you, you do <laughs> have to wonder a little bit that, like,
0: I mean, I guess this is a special election, but then it, it comes up again in November, right? Yeah, so in potentially different district yes, with the redistricting but, yes. right? <laughs> right, and then also, Almost like, certainly. you yeah. know. I don't, if you're Swazi and it's at all competitive, I'm not sure you're thrilled about Biden being at the top of the ticket, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, I just, like, heard the, like, Elise Slotkin who's running for Senate in Michigan starting to worry that, like, I can't beat the Republican mm-hmm. if because turnout's going to be, be terrible for the Democrats. Um, two final questions. One is, does the system change and learn anything from this or is it just such a crazy anomaly that everyone just writes it off?
2: I think that the system has shifted in a few significant ways. Um, we're doing a little more vetting of candidates right this second, right? I wrote in the book that there's been this kind of funny little mini boom in vulnerability studies, which is basically candidates checking their own background and making yeah. sure they know everything. Um, so the consultants are making money off that, you know? Yeah. Um, I will just say on self oppo. Yeah. So like
0: every time someone comes to see me and tell me they want to for office and I tell them, don't do it. You're not going to win. <laughs> you won't like it if you do. Um, I say at least you got to do some self-oppo. And 99% of the time, I don't need to. Yep. I haven't done anything wrong. Yep. I know exactly what's out there about me. And then I say, "Well, why is there a scandal almost every day about a politician if that's true? Do the fucking
2: oppo. Right. Uh, so I'm glad in some ways that now people actually are listening. They seem to be listening. Um, and there's also a little more vetting on the journalism side too, right? Which is great. Um, But these things go in cycles and people forget, you know, it's like uh, after Watergate, uh, we had some more kind of vetting as well. And Mm -hmm. then that shifted. So I think it's cyclical. And then last question, just, uh, you might need a second to think about this, but let's just end it with
0: your five favorite Santos lies or lines.
2: Wow. Wow. We've already used
0: Jewish. You can't use that.
2: Okay. Can't use Jewish. Okay. All right. I'll go with my top one. One of my favorites, a weird one. He uh, claimed... That he was born at, um, and now I, I'm, I want to make sure I get the number right. I think it's 24 weeks gestation. <laughs> can, just, can you be, Can you live? Y- you hour? know, I, I right, looked right into at 24 this. you can live. That's yeah. pretty much. So that's, right, but so it's he, it's like he did, right he did the, the research. research.
0: I think. Well, ours ours yeah. were born at 31 or something. So yeah. we are so aware of it. We got we got really
1: anyway. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. no,
2: and I. <laughs> but this is the challenge with the Santos story: is he says that, and I'm like, that's fascinating. How do I prove that? It's really hard to prove a negative. I had to look at, you know, federal and city records of how many people that week were born oh in the God. city at that gestation, you know, period. It's crazy. Um, did, did it check out? Or no? it, it was very, very unlikely that this was possible. And his family members that I talked to uh, and friends didn't remember anything about that. <laughs> so, okay. <laughs> where rule. Yeah. So where can people find you? Um, wait, wait, wait. We're
1: only number one. Oh, did you have more? I have top yeah, five. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah, top five. Wow. Okay. Yeah. okay give that's give one. us at least one more. All yeah, right, yeah, the top yeah, yeah, Fine. yeah. And then read the um, book for the rest. Yeah, yeah, you gotta read the book. Um, the the book is the book is fun. There's plenty of stuff in there. Um, I love that one, and um, I I really love the Horace Man one too, um, which again for New Yorkers um, would be probably f- be familiar with this uh, this this fancy private school um, that Santos said he went to. Um, and then double down on it. You know, this is the other funny thing is that usually once you once you get caught in a lie, you don't double down on it. But he did. And so, again, I went to the school. They said they checked records dating back to like the early 20, 20th century and found nothing. <laughs> I even found, I looked through all the yearbooks and found nothing. Um, and so, you know, it's just why would he do this? And I think it's because he wanted to present this different picture about himself. And, and so last question, uh, all
0: said and done, Right on one hand, he's probably going to prison. He's a national disgrace. All this stuff. On the other hand, we're talking about him. Oh yeah. Right and like, had he not done all these crazy things, then he just would have been a nobody that no one ever heard of. If you give him all of this, you know, when he's sort of asking those teachers in Jackson Heights, "How do I get ahead?" and yeah. say, "This is the choice: take it or leave <laughs> it." What does he say?
2: I think he says yes. Yeah. Uh, he, you know, he enjoys all this. Yeah.
0: All right, the book is The Fabulous, The Lying, Hustling, Grifting, Stealing, and Very American Legend of George Santos by Mark Chuasano. Uh, you can buy it here at P&T, P&T Knitwear. You can buy it on Amazon, Barnes & Nobles, any bookstore you want. Um, I'm sure there's an audio book did, did you read it?
2: I didn't I didn't, I wish Yeah.
0: Uh, actually, so having <laughs> having both read and not read my it's books, it's hard, right yeah, yeah. I, I thought like, oh I'll be really good at this, I host a podcast I yeah. was a fucking disaster, it was terrible so, um, but anyway, it's a great book please read it, and if people want to follow you beyond that how, how do they do so?
2: MJ Chisano uh, on Twitter.
1: There
0: we go, alright, Mark thanks for joining us Thank, Thank you. you Thank
2: you Firewall
0: is recorded on the lower east side of PNT Network, home to New York City's only free podcast recording studio. Let us know if you have a question, feedback, or ideas for a guest. Just email me at Bradley at firewall.media or find me on Twitter, or some people now call it X, at Bradley Tusk. And don't forget to pre-order my debut novel, Obvious in Hindsight, wherever books are sold, especially here at PNT Network.